2020. Welcome to the new decade with the same old leadership in New York. It's Andrew Cuomo's 10th year as governor, Bill de Blasio's 7th year as mayor, and yet it promises to be a busy and intense year in New York politics. Both the governor and the mayor have laid out their priorities in their state of the state and city addresses, and through other news and government deliberations, we've also gotten a sense of key legislative policy and political concerns. And did we mention there's also a presidential election this year? As the state and city legislative sessions begin in earnest, there are many unanswered questions and challenges facing elected officials. And for today's episode, we have two great guests to help us break it all down and look ahead. Alyssa Katz of the City and Laura Namias of the Daily News Editorial Board, both of whom have covered closely the mayor, the governor, and much more. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. And we're going to jump right into it with our, our great and return guests, Alyssa and Laura. Thanks for being here. Um, so let's start with sort of the most recent uh, events of what Maria outlined. We had earlier this year the governor do his state of the state and budget, and then more recently we had the mayor do his state of the city uh, his budget, and then his Albany budget testimony about the governor's budget and other city priorities. So let's start with the mayor, his agenda, where he's at. Um, he had his presidential run. That's now well in the past, uh, seemingly, although we'll see how much he dips himself back into the 2020 fray. But now that he's sort of refocusing, it seems, on local business, how do you sort of capture where he's at, what it seems like he's focused on, what he's contending with? Um, this is Alyssa. Uh, thank you so much for having me on again. Um, you know, de Blasio uh, structured his State of the City address around this theme of Save Our City, SOS, right? And it was a very <laughs> deliberate, uh, kind of over-the-top message. And he really aimed that message um, at a kind of shadowy and unnamed kind of they who are taking our city away from us. And it was, uh, you know, he's really was focusing on the unaffordability of housing, the sense that people have that the uh, New York City of uh, kind of uh, quirky, smaller, local mom and pop businesses is fading away and kind of being overtaken by uh, big corporations. And delivered a bunch of policy prescriptions kind of aimed at that problem as defined there, which, you know, he was clearly really speaking to things that he no doubt had heard. I mean, he's not a kind of go out on the streets every day kind of guy, but when he's done town halls, when he's done other things interacting with the public, no doubt he heard those sentiments. They're very widely felt around the city. New York City is going through uh, big challenges in those areas really driven by, uh, I'd say, income and wealth inequality, right, where you have limited land, you have limited resources, I mean, we're not developing enough housing, his own administration has acknowledged. So in that environment of scarcity, yes, people who don't have a lot, who are the majority of people, are really in a terrible situation. There's no question about that. Um, he responded to that uh, set of facts with a very particular frame and set of prescriptions, some of which were very um, kind of I interestingly directed right at those issues, such as you know, something that we wrote about at the city, the city.nyc, is um, accessory dwelling units, right? The idea of encouraging financing and uh, putting regulatory relief on 
property owners who want to legalize a basement apartment, put a little a tiny house in their backyard, um, that could have some marginal impact on affordable housing, but it was an interesting kind of targeted strategy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you really had these prescriptions for saving retail businesses that really had a lot of passion and very little logic. Right. I mean, it, it, I think a lot of people in their reporting on his State of the City address kind of tackled the cognitive dissonance of a save our city theme after he's been mayor since January 1st of 2014. Save the city from who Who exactly? You are in charge. And why um, haven't you been saving it all along? Why yeah. haven't you been saving it all along? But also, I mean, I think one of the things that's that is underpinning a lot of the problems, um, and and it's a chicken or the egg kind of thing. Aside from the housing affordability crisis, is that you really do look at um, job creation in New York City, which is is still really strong, but you dig a little deeper, um, and there is job creation at the very low end of the spectrum. Very low wage jobs are getting created, and very high wage and very few of anything in between. And that is exacerbating some of this polarization. And, uh, you know, who's creating the middle class jobs? Where can people who make middle income $75,000 a year, which seems like a lot outside of New York City, but is middle class here, um, where do those people live? Where do they shop? Um, And, you know, it, it would have been nice if he had been thinking about that all along, um, I think he has to a certain extent. There's only so much that he can he can do. But well, Laura, I don't recall if it was at a previous State of the City address, but he, Blasio earlier on in his you know his first term uh, had come out with a middle class jobs plan. Right. Like a very yeah, ambitious. Oh yeah, that's right. State of the City. That's too. right. That was like the one State of the City where he said, "This is my only focus for this." Right. And, and so, you know, and he, he talked about getting, you know, half uh, CUNY graduates into half of tech right. jobs. He talked about creating a pipeline. All of this stuff was very, very central. Um, I haven't looked at, you know, the results of it was you know, 2017, the right? I think mm-hmm. it was 20, Maybe, per, yeah. a little earlier, I think. But it was, um, you know, it, it, where's the progress on that? I think you're raising exactly uh, the right issue. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the. Um, you know, the, the, the other part of the frame that I found really interesting around kind of justifying, particularly um, at, like basically making affordable housing more affordable, which will mean more capital spending on subsidies, possibly fewer units created as a result, um, is, you know, the metaphor the mayor used was, um, you know, there's basically a sick patient and uh, we've applied the antibiotics and they haven't worked and now we need to increase the dosage. It was basically standing by what we've done is correct on these interventions. It just had, they haven't been powerful enough. And I thought that was an interesting conclusion because it wasn't like he was presenting kind of evidence that these were all the right prescriptions and that he should increase the dosage. I mean, there's other ways of looking at those problems and and on no issue did he sort of step back and say, you know, we should maybe think about this differently or, you know, come up with some other strategy. Right. And I think on the housing, it's particularly interesting because it's exactly right that we do need a tremendous amount of new housing supply at all income levels to come onto the city. Um, and so on the one hand, he's saying, well, let's you know help spur that by coming again to back to this idea of basement units and accessory dwelling units and sort of housing where we can find it. And I think that's a great idea. And on the other hand, he's saying, well... We need to go deeper on the affordability, which will ultimately produce less units because of the cross-subsidy required from the rents or from the city's own subsidy to make those units affordable. 
Um, you know, it's so a couple things based on what you said, you know, we don't have metrics on some of these big ideas, right? So we're not seeing kind of the coming back and saying, okay, we've got the big idea and now here we are with our one year progress report or here we are to show you how we're moving the needle on some of this. And the truth be told on some of these issues, particularly as how, you know, as they affect the poorest New Yorkers, the city will not be able to do much on, on its own. And it's a frustrating reality, but, you know, the most effective interventions, whether they are, you know, NYCHA units that lock in affordable rents, Section 8 vouchers, um, some federal, federal assistance, they all come from the federal level. And, you know, on the one hand, you want to give the mayor credit for not saying, oh, I got to throw my hands up. I can't do anything about it. On the other hand, you know, there's a sense even on something like homelessness that you can't keep throwing money at a problem without really bending the curve on the results. Well, I I mean, in some of those areas, the federal lack of aid notwithstanding, um, he has repeatedly shot himself in the foot with his inability to make the political moves or take a stand necessary to get something done. I mean, on on NYCHA infill housing, they just keep backing off, and he's promised over and over again to to work on this. Um, he on on NYCHA itself and fixing its problems and maybe, you know, right sizing it, he can't seem to get anything done. On the affordable housing piece with rezonings, he has yeah, is is flat-footed and and it's just toppling. Um, and that may be something structural with the way that they they went at the the rezonings to begin with, not targeting it at at every neighborhood, but instead focusing on on low income and and majority minority communities. Um, but he he has done himself no favors, um, and that has compounded the the hurt for, on the federal side. I think. I think it's it's tricky in a couple of ways because. Um, I think he undermined his own sense of progress by using this theme. I mean, he does have a claim to progress in a variety of areas as much as in certain ways his plans, which he's acknowledging here in stark terms, his plans have not met the moment. They've not met the need. Um, I don't know that what he's really outlining here is so bold that it really fits the the theme that he's laying out there, right? I mean, he's saying on both sort of rental housing and on small businesses, we, we, we couldn't really imagine it was going to keep getting this bad, which is kind of a surprising um, admission. But then also offering up, you know, some some things you might put in a bold category that mostly he doesn't have control over and then other things that are like adjustments to his plans that are ongoing that don't seem necessarily to really fit this emergency that he's kind of declaring in year seven. Right, but I, but I think that you just hit on a key kind of theme with de Blasio, which is that he at no point wants to admit that he doesn't have control over something. In, 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 in an interesting kind of twist within the... Um, uh, within that speech is the one thing he claimed to kind of not have control over, he kind of did, which is on this proposal for, um, you know, he said that, you know, we, we've, we've heard these proposals for uh, commercial rent control, for you know, mm-hmm. save small businesses. And he's saying, I haven't heard one that's legal. 
Um, you know, city council has now tried twice. One didn't get out of committee from Adonis Rodriguez a couple of years ago. Um, now Steve Levin and Brad Lander on the council have a new proposal. And de Blasio has kind of kept them at bay saying um, that they that it's not legal. Well, you know, when the Bar Association looked at the uh, Rodriguez proposal, they just said, well, um, you know, it's up to Albany, New York City, the city council doesn't have jurisdiction. They didn't really weigh in on any constitutional issues, anything else. Um, and yet what de Blasio is saying now is I'm going to create a task force to study commercial rent control to see if there's a way that they can do it that is legal. Um, and if they can find a way, then we will go to Albany and ask for it. In his final year as mayor. Right. And and I think this is all a kind of elaborate dodge around. He wants to be able to say he's doing something on uh, the issue. But at the same time, his own city planning uh, commission or his own city planning department, I should say, came out with a really interesting study in August, sort of in response to the council's actions and demand um, for commercial rent control, saying, you know what? Uh, a one-size-fits-all response um, not only won't solve the problem, it could actually be destructive. And what they did was they studied 24 different uh, districts around the city, and they found that a lot of them were thriving. Um, they found that a lot of them uh, sort of had different issues that didn't necessarily have anything to do with rent. In some cases, it was taxes, property taxes, which um, the city and the mayor and the council imposed. There were other pressures, also, you know, wage requirements, regulations. I mean, they went through a host of issues, each of which is somewhat different in each district. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, within this kind of save our city frame, the mayor is sort of kind of creating this kind of narrative that suits the idea that he's going to kind of um, yeah, try to address these, these issues head on. But, you know, he's also trying to not, you know, to satisfy this constituency that demands this particular answer. It is kind of reverse engineering a way to address that rather than being honest and saying no, which would be the honest way to respond to that. I, I mean, I think, you know, I struggle with some of this because of the way he framed it. There are things in here that are, you know, not to be sniffed at or dismissed, right? The idea that the city will start providing lawyers to low-income small business owners, um, it seems. I mean, that needs to be maybe looked at a little more closely. But, you know, some of these things that could yeah. very well help make a dent in the problem. I mean, these, these are not all either just small tweaks to his programs or things he has no control over. There's some things in here that seemingly are interesting, maybe worthwhile ideas. So that's not to be dismissed, but it was, again, this framing that is curious to me. And he, you know, to your point, Laura, sort of one of the biggest things I was interested in hearing him come in is talk about the future of NYCHA. And he barely mentioned NYCHA at all, mm -hmm. just about community centers. Again, fine. Probably a good idea to open up these community centers that have been closed. But where is the, here's one of my biggest moments where the city is paying attention to me. And here's how I'm rallying the public around my rescue NYCHA plan. Mm -hmm. Well, it, not only that, but there's a lot of heavy lifting on some really serious issues, you know, left to be done in these last two years, right? So NYCHA is one great example. Um, we mentioned homelessness. Um, there's school desegregation, which was, you know, consumed a big part of the conversation last year and, well, you know, the future of the gifted schools. Um, and there's also the property tax reform, which the mayor and his administration have committed to completing in the next two years and is no small task, right? So what, what are you going to do about this? Are you going to push it forward? What is the game plan going forward to actually, like, start to fix some of these big issues? And to me, instead of kind of saying, okay, I'm here, 
I'm ready. I'm going to make the last two years productive. I've got these big things to do and I'm on the case. To me, it was just sort of a pivot to these other sort of issues. Yeah. Yeah. On the school desegregation, he didn't talk about the specialized high schools and his new, what his new vision on that might be after having said he was going back to the drawing board after his previous proposal um, was basically shot down. And then he had his own task force put out recommendations in August of last year around, you know, everything that got so much attention around the call to basically replace the current gifted and talented system. He said, we're going to have a year-long conversation about that. And cricket yeah. since, including right. in the state of the city, which There's I thought- an excellent podcast on that that you should look <laughs> up. We had a great <laughs> discussion year. on the topic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think you have a sort of similar pattern on, on property taxes, actually, where if you look at the timing of the commission, it was announced at least- two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the timing, you know, so de Blasio went, also went to uh, Albany this week to testify before, you know, a joint hearing of a state legislature on the budget as he does every year. And one of the things he met, he did mention the property tax reforms, but, you know, given that this, these are draft reforms, they're now supposed to go through a local public hearing process. This means that there is no way the legislature can actually do anything. I mean, they could, but the mayor's not saying, here's proposals, right. you can act on them this session. It means that we're at least another year away from the possibility of them doing anything. And I just found it absurd that he would go up there and testify that when he clearly was precluding any action. And and it's, it seems like deliberately so. I can't see how else the um, timeline or anything else makes sense. Yeah, I think the intention is that they'll have more hearings on this report and then a final report and then legislative proposals. And so one is, you know, my very reasonably asked, does this even happen during a de Blasio mayoralty? Well, on top of that, of course, not to jump ahead to, to Albany, but I thought it was noteworthy that when, you know, this was under somewhat hostile questioning from Assemblywoman Nicole Maliotakis, mm-hmm. who's running for Congress, just got endorsed by Trump. So, you know, she's using her moment. But she, you know, Maliotakis came in there and said, you know, demanded, you know, basically accountability for increases in property taxes that her constituents have felt, which I don't have the exact math in front of me, but I know um, Citizens Budget Commission has been great at, at tracking these numbers. And I think that the typical property tax bill has gone up 40, 50 percent since de Blasio took office, right? Mm-hmm. And he's said, oh, it's because property values are going up. Isn't that basically saying, isn't, isn't that great? That's a good thing. Um, but not acknowledging that this has a real impact on, we talked about small businesses, it has an impact on households, it has an impact on all kinds of things. And the mayor testified, you know, the property tax rate has not gone up. The property tax rate has not gone up, which is an incredibly disingenuous answer to that question when the mayor and the city council set the levy that actually determines how much every household is going to pay. And they never uh, bill anything less than the maximum amount they can. Um, oh, by yeah. I was pointing that out. They've basically had the same exchange every, every year, year in that same like hearing, <laughs> which yeah. is she says, you should put in a 2% property tax cap. And he says, we're not going to do that. We need the revenue. And then they talk about the levy and the rate. Right? Yeah. And, and then they spin this story about how we're not growing the budget, but the revenues are growing, right, right. you know? You don't have to spend everything that you get. Well, I mean, um, he basically has made the property tax reform harder because he's he's mandated or the the commission charged with coming up with the recommendations was charged to come up with solutions or recommendations that were revenue neutral and so there it's going to create some pretty big winners and losers instead of holding open the possibility that you could lower some people's property tax bills without having to drastically raise some other people's to compensate for the loss in revenue 
Um, so that I think that makes it more politically difficult, but it also takes care of the fact that he has grown the budget so much and it's just really difficult to cut once you've already put spending in place. Yeah, and politically, we're already hearing from constituents in his home district of Park Slope who've been the beneficiary of these inequities that are baked into the system through state law who are saying, you know, we won't be able to afford to stay in this neighborhood where, you know, we've lived a long time. And these are very sympathetic stories. You know, this is exactly what could have been predicted about what this reform process would have resulted in. Let's move on to the state budget and, and tie that in with, with the Medicaid discussion, which is obviously mm-hmm. looming so much over all this. And also we should we should touch on um, bail reform, which is also was a was a theme of the mayor's testimony in Albany, although he he only brought it up somewhat in passing. But then it was, you know, there were questions about it. But just to take one more minute on some of this stuff, you know, we're hitting on to me, you know, this kind of theme that he has so much still to sort of talk to New Yorkers about and figure out on some of these big issues NYCHA, um, property tax, school desegregation. He's supposed to be, you know, citing many more shelters, you know, and NYCHA, obviously, as I was saying before, and you were saying, Laura, you know, he has to convince some of these localities to sort of go along with him. I mean, technically, he doesn't exactly have to convince them, but but he should be convincing them to go along with him on the infill development, neighborhood rezonings. You know, some of these things were last year was basically a lost year, right? And now we're seeing the the last two years here, which really is about this year. What can you get done this year to lead into your final year where you're sort of just cutting some ribbons if if that's the type of thing you like to do or not um, and trying to wrap up, you know, implementation of some things. So he has a lot of these major topics to still handle that seem to be going very slowly. I really think that I, and this is the last thing I'll say on this, um, that a defining characteristic of his mayoralty is going to be his fealty to various parochial interests, interest groups who have individually might not be a huge part of the city, but are able to defeat um, when they they combine their powers uh, uh, a proposal that would benefit the whole city. And his inability, or not inability, but just demonstrated record of not really engaging the entire city to sort of call upon their sense of civic responsibility to support any... Uh, one initiative or another and and so things get uh, various interest groups and neighborhoods have total veto power over something that would be maybe good for everybody in the aggregate and and I think that that is it's a shame because he has all of the all of the tools in the world so much money such a healthy economy Mm. to do huge things and and He's done some very big things to his credit, but but there's so much more that he he could do. And there's there's interesting sort of political uh, history to to unpack there, which we'll we'll do as his as his terms ending perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, on Medicaid, and we've on this podcast had a few different discussions on it. I don't think we want to try to go through all the the nitty gritty of it, but how after seeing the governor's budget and some of the recent discussion. How are you thinking about it, Maria? Well, the the budget story, I think, is almost entirely about Medicaid this year um, on a couple of different avenues. One, you, you know, to summarize very briefly, there's a state budget gap. The budget gap is largely caused by overspending in Medicaid, and the state played some games in terms of delaying payments to kind of obfuscate that fact initially, um, and then to very much just manage the cash of the budget on an ongoing basis. Um 
So that's one part of the problem. So the governor, though, is kind of getting it in gear and taking the big step of reconvening the Medicaid redesign team with the goal of generating $2.5 billion in savings on the state share um, that'll grow and recur. So, you know, that MRT just convened. Um, they've got a lot, a lot of work to do. It is no small task, especially when the governor's charges do not harm beneficiaries and do not harm local governments. So... The, you know, the shape of the state's finances rests heavily on the shoulders of this MRT. Man, and then, <laughs> yes, very, very short yeah. timeline. Um, and then third, there's a proposal which doesn't offer state budget relief so much right now, but is very critical, which would undo a, a signature achievement actually of the Cuomo administration, which is to freeze the growth in the local share of Medicaid. And, you know, New York is unique in that local governments are forced to pay a pretty big share of Medicaid. And over time, starting in the 2000s, you know, the growth in the local share was capped. And then under Governor Cuomo, it was frozen. And now they're sort of saying their take on it is, well, the locals are not doing enough to save costs when, of course, the policies and the rates are all set by the state and federal government. Um, and so they're saying, if you cannot control, if you um, exceed the property tax cap of 2% and your costs grow beyond 3%, you are going to be responsible for the increment. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of confusion exactly on the increment on what base. Is it the local share? Is it the state and local share? There's conflicting stories. The city estimates it to be as high as $1.1 impact on its budget. The state is saying, no, you're calculating it wrong. So there's a lot that probably will be clarified in the 30-day amendments to the state budget, but Medicaid is the central story this year for the state. Laura, you've been writing on this a lot. Yeah. I, I have. I think that what's getting lost in the conversation and, and various, the city has written about this and, and some people have written about it, um, is what exactly the increase in spending is going toward. And there's two very important issues at, at play here. One is that uh, a lot of the spending is in Medicaid managed long-term care, and this is partly a result of people getting older and partly a result of the fact that the state tried to address uh, a critical flaw in our national health care system, which is that Medicare does not, for the most part, cover long-term care services, which are things that, that older people need at home, um, help, help with the... Uh, uh, their housework, um, all, all kinds of things that they need at home. And Medicaid in New York does cover that. Um, and the only way that it's getting covered is is through these Medicaid-managed long-term care plans. The plans uh, are, are spending so much per person on, on long-term care services and, and other kinds of, of services that they're going over. A, a managed care plan has a, a, a rate that's paid per person they have incentive to enroll more and more and more people so that they can be financially solvent. Um, and that is something that is related to the, the, the fact that we have a national health care system that is just a mess. It's a mess. Medicare being run by the federal government, uh, Medicaid being run by states, Medicaid paying different rates than Medicare, Medicare paying more favorable rates to doctors. Um, there's, it's, and that is not the state's fault. The other issue, really important, is that for the past several years, we've seen explosive growth in this one little area um, called consumer-directed personal care, which is a very nice idea. 
um, and I think necessary that allows somebody to pick the person who provides personal care services or home care services um, if they have like a long-term disability or they're at home um, and to have that person be paid by Medicaid. But it's kind of like the Wild West of Medicaid spending. There's very little regulations on the various um, for-profit actors who have sprung up around this industry to help process payroll uh, uh, costs related to it. And the state is finally sort of acknowledging that, but that is just a huge area of unregulated, unlicensed space where a very, you know, shrewd person or business might come in and find a way to make millions of dollars off of, you know, public money. Yeah. And I mean, and this is sort of gets to the crux of what is so dissonant and problematic about Cuomo's whole approach that Maria described before, right? Because Laura just accurately described a huge driver that um, mayor, you know, the, the, I'm sorry, the governor's office has kind of signaled with this Medicaid redesign team that they're going to look at exactly this program, right? This consumer directed care as well as long-term care. This all signals, signals are on that they know this. Um, and this is all a creature of, um, of state regulation and state programs and a bunch of other state things. The only thing that the localities do, and de Blasio accurately testified this, is you know they do the uh, screenings, right? They look at financially, are you qualified for Medicaid or not? Um, and other than that, they're kind of beholden to a bunch of state mechanisms for, for whether or not someone should get this coverage. Um, so, you know, what, the way I look at Cuomo's play when he's basically doing, you know, what Maria just described about the, um, you know, if you go over the property tax cap and you've got to be accountable, uh, this locality has to be accountable for the uh, difference in, in uh, Medicaid costs. You know, Cuomo is saying the locality needs to have skin in the game and, you know, this whole idea that they, if they don't, then they're letting costs run wild. I think it's really that Cuomo has, for years, every budget in different ways has sought to get the city of New York to pony up more. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this isn't the only front, right? He's also done this with uh, the MTA, and de Blasio objected with that on capital spending, saying, you know, you haven't <laughs> like delivered on the last one, why you want more now? Um, but specifically, you know, this with, with Medicaid, it's just another way Cuomo just feels like New York City has too much money and that he doesn't have enough. Well, mm -hmm. And <laughs> in the facts of the matter that New York City is is in better fiscal shape than the right. state, right? Yeah. I mean, the the you know, one of the things to Cuomo's advantage is that he can just sort of move the legislature to put in state law that the city needs to pay for more things like he like he wound up doing with the subway action plan, which right. was, you know, a pretty dramatic move that the legislature went along with. And some of it indicative of how much power he has in the state budget process. But yeah. it's pretty dangerous. And de Blasio, I think, has a pretty strong leg to stand on when he says, you know, if the state's going to be raiding our reserves and our surplus now, you know, when we hit hard times, are we going to be able to call on the state for some kind of relief? Probably not. Well, that's why we need a nice rainy day fund, but let's not get yeah. diverted from that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think starting in the last recession, you know, they cut the local payments to New York City. That was a big chunk. And I think, you know, the news headlines focus on the big dramatic stuff like CUNY and the MTA and now the Medicaid. But the truth is, year after year, there are smaller cuts, particularly in social services, to reimbursement rates are such that the city mm -hmm. has just been eating for the last few years. Tens of millions yes. each year, basically. Yes. On that Medicaid front, 
it was so, you know, it was interesting to hear the mayor testify in Albany about, okay, here are a few of my ideas for what can be done. I mean, of course, one of them was always raise taxes on the wealthy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, this question of how much control the city has over the growth in Medicaid kept coming back to him saying, do you want us to enroll fewer people, basically? You know, right. isn't it a good thing that more people have health care? And on one hand, the governor and his team are saying New York has really high health insurance yeah. coverage and isn't it that good? And then, correct me if I'm wrong, but Laura, you, you outlined two of the drivers and a third one is the $15 minimum wage that went into effect. de Blasio was also saying, isn't that a good thing that everybody's happy with? So, you know, let's be careful here right. sort of what we're asking for. Um, but do... I don't know. Do we have a sense of what the city can actually control here? Is there, is there, you know, when Cuomo is telling the city to get, you know, to rein it in? The, the only thing the city could conceivably do, and this would be very harsh, would be to give much more aggressive scrutiny to people's finances because the um, for long-term managed care, um, you know, they like by law they only have to look at basically your recent. Um, income and assets. And, you know, it's, I don't think this is the case for most applicants. As we know, a lot of New Yorkers have low incomes, but there may be people on the margins who are doing the things that people often do. Um, you know, if they're middle class and late in life, they need Medicaid, they distribute their assets somehow. I don't know how it works, but that's, they could go after those people. But the, do we really want to be going after people to say, sorry, that's, you don't need care? They're, they're trying to qualify for basically the only um, reasonable health insurance program that exists uh, uh, to pay for necessary long-term care. This could, if you are not an extremely wealthy person, you can't really afford long-term right. care insurance. So there's a whole cottage industry that sprung up around people hiding assets, spending them right. down so they can qualify for poor people's health care programs so they can live late in life. That is a fundamental flaw that is a national problem. And New York has, I think, done the right thing by trying to provide people with health care, but we've taken a lot of the burden on ourselves at the state level through our Medicaid program. And the big picture is that that where's the federal government here and where's their responsibility? And Well, the federal government, of course, what we have is, you know, you don't have state and local tax deductibility. So all of these the fights that we're talking about are happening in this pressure cooker yeah. right now. And then this gets to the, um, you know, increase taxes on the wealthy, which is very much a drumbeat, we are hearing certainly from progressive factions in in, in the legislature as well, and from activists. I mean, there'll be you know Cuomo uh, until now has really like helped align on that, and, and and said very explicitly, people will leave, people are leaving, and there's evidence meaning that wealthy people can change the location of where they pay taxes to a place like Florida, where they pay zero income tax. So it'll be interesting to see how the politics of tax the rich play out in this climate with all these other pressures on. Right. right. And there, there's a flip side of that, which people don't think about, but I'll toss in the cooker now, which is, you know, one area where the budget con continues to support wealthy people in high, ex to a high extent, is school aid. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because school aid, state school aid is supposed to supplement local government's ability to provide a sound basic education. And we're not saying that's the end all be all, but, you know, it's the state constitutional goal and where we should make sure every district is. And instead, the state continues to spend, I don't know, maybe a billion dollars every year sending it to wealthy districts that can pay, you know, with a very low tax rate on their own on their own uh, population. 
$30,000 per pupil. And it's an easy area to sort of look at and say, okay, we need to completely fix that. This well, tax. Cuomo has a proposal related to that. I don't know if it's an effective yeah. one. I haven't it's, studied it's, it. It's a good first step mm. in that there are certain tax, you know, most, the big pot of school aid money is targeted based on need. And there's some problems with it, but overall it is progressive. It does continue to send money to these wealthy districts. Um, and it's got bells and whistles that are in the formula that do that. But there's other set of needs that basically reimburse you for your expenses. And those are the ones that tend to benefit the higher when wealthier districts um, disproportionately. Now, Cuomo's saying, let's put this into the formula, which is great, except it's not kind of run on a need basis, which is what you would like. It's sort of tacked on later. So it's like, part of the solution but not the whole solution but you know overall there is a a state budget problem and you've got these increases in school aid that are just you know part of how you got to remember unlike the city state agencies have been frozen for years now i mean their budgets have been relatively flat so you've got the growth in medicaid but you really had growth in school aid and so the state still continues to send a lot of money to these districts and while the governor has proposed less than advocates would like there's for example you know i think it's 800 million there's 200 million pot that's just kind of there for the legislature to disperse right so this is not how we should be doing school aid in new york state and i think there's opportunity for reform to make it both more efficient and also targeted to the needy districts that really really need it we're in our last couple minutes here with uh Alyssa katz of the city and laura namias of the daily news editorial board um any any other final thoughts on medicaid let's touch on a couple other things I, i don't know if Anybody else at the table has a great sense of sort of Cuomo's agenda here? You know, it seems like he's got the budget to deal with, and that's kind of the big item. And then other than that, I don't know that he's really identified sort of like his big thing for the year or things. It's um, all green stuff. Right, green. a lot of green, it's right? The, the mayor, we didn't even touch on the mayor. You know, some of the mayor's Save Our City agenda was also about climate and um and fighting uh, global warming and reducing plastic use. We can get back to that another time. I mean, I guess marijuana legalization is still this big thing hanging over the state, Um, but I don't know that we have any sense. Cuomo already has said that he doesn't think it'll get done this year. Is there anything else that we can identify? I mean, you know, he's got this, like the mayor did with his agenda, the governor has kind of a laundry list of proposals that he put out there without any clear, you know, sense of what his top, priorities are yeah no i mean i really do feel like medicaid has sucked all the oxygen out Mm -hmm. and i you know and i think it is a moment sort of akin to when cuomo first got to office and set the property tax cap or you know advocated and set it and uh and then you know had his first medicaid redesign team and it's you know and i think that's an appropriate focus honestly and i didn't i don't begrudge him having i mean you know as usual it's a very fat book with a lot of pandering proposals the number aimed at women and you know just it was all you know he he puts all the stuff out there as kind of a statement of what uh what he stands for i mean i know you you know the one thing we haven't talked about that you mentioned briefly earlier is just it's a non-budgetary issue although it has some implications which is bail reform that's Mm -hmm. the other big fight right now and you know he's you know i think it would be as i think um he may have uh, indicated it's kind of a bad idea to deal with this in the budget, which is how it was passed in the first place and why it's so broken, because there was no debate, no scrutiny, no consulting uh, with stakeholders. It was just, let's do this. And it was done in a way that no state has done, and I think no state should have done, because it really 
um, kind of works against, it works for some of the objectives to kind of relieve the burdens of unnecessary pre-child detention. And I don't think anyone, you know, outside um, people with very, very bad ideas really disputes that goal. But then it's a question of how do you get there in a way that is sustainable and that works toward justice? And I don't think we're there. Well, I mean, it's not just a problem with the way they pass bail reform. There's so much legislation that gets tacked into the budget because it's the only way that the houses can force their priorities through in in the course of the year. Um, and they left out money to fund pretrial services that are an essential component of the law, seemingly by accident in last year's budget, which which sort of really cripples the ability of of the law to work. Right, and um, this is the same issue with the pre-trial detention yeah. as, not pre-trial detention, sorry, pre-trial discovery as right. well. And, you know, this is, sorry to interrupt, Laura, but I do think, you know, it was astounding that they didn't provide for pre-trial services, given that in New Jersey, where they passed bail reform, this was an issue that the state had identified and right. struggled with. And they, and they had provided funding, and their analysis was that they hadn't provided enough. And New York right. just skip right over that yeah i mean i don't know how you fix the the legislative i don't have any great ideas for fixing the legislative process so that they're not writing incredibly important legislation at 3 a.m in the morning the day before the budgets do this seems like this was a mistake and it shouldn't have been allowed to be a mistake well and this goes back to one of the points that cuomo has raised around trying to do marijuana which is like Let's get it into the budget, in part because it shields legislators. We, sh- we should also mention hanging over all of this discussion, especially for Albany, is it's a state legislative election year. Um, so that matters in terms of everything from bail reform to Medicaid to school aid, for sure. Um, and and obviously other issues that we've raised. Um, but that he was saying last year, let's get bail done in the budget and you can blame me because it's the governor and it's, you know, I get all the credit and the blame for the budget no matter what. And, you know, let's jam it in there. And it seems like in the in the end, there had been a lot of conversation around it. But in the end, they decided, OK, here's where we can find finally get on that compromise and let's just ram it through. Um, and we're seeing some real repercussions from a lack of, of real thought and planning. And it's it is really remarkable to, to watch the difference between how the city operates on some of this stuff and, and the state. Final thought for me is just that, you know, the, the state did last year pass this monumental environment bill, right? And now there's some more action going on, but I think this is something to watch going forward in terms of how it's implemented because it will have serious repercussions for New Yorkers. Great addition and final thought. We, we should dig into that on, a, on another episode fully, uh, how the climate bill passed last year is being implemented in the early phases and what comes next. Alyssa Katz, Laura Namias, thank you so much for for joining us, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.